It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hey, can we just take a moment to celebrate all the good COVID news that is happening right now after this nightmarish year plus in which most of America was locked down? You know how many COVID-19 deaths there were in New York City on Monday? Zero. Zero. Some states have been reporting certain days where it is zero. Now, this doesn't mean the pandemic is over. People are still dying. There are still new cases and all that. But the plummeting of these figures from the peak of the pandemic, we're now back to where it was in March of 2020 when it was just starting to explode and none of us had any idea of how bad things would get. Uh, So the average number of deaths now in the United States is about 300 a day. It was 3,000 a day at one point in this pandemic. And the vaccination rate is slowly creeping up. Uh, those who have received, of the, you know, over 12, the eligible population have received at least one dose, over 60%. And I feel like if we could just get it to 70%, uh, especially fully vaccinated, that we would just kind of kick this thing's ass. Um, but I think the fact that so many people now have been vaccinated or partially vaccinated uh, I don't understand why anybody wouldn't get the second shot. Um, really uh, is the game changer here. Uh, and, you know, when the CDC announced three weeks ago that if you got vaccinated, you didn't need to wear a mask outside or in most inside situations, I think that finally got a lot of people off the fence. They saw that the friends, neighbors, relatives, uh, co-workers were able to, you know, live without these restrictions. And they said, hey, I want some of that, too. And I think Krispy Kreme Donuts just announced that if we reach the 70% by July 4th, which is Joe Biden's target, free donuts for everybody. That's good. Uh, Guess who just got fined uh, $187,000? It's the parent company of the National Enquirer. This has to do with the payments to Karen McDougal. You remember her? She was the former Playboy model uh, who alleged that she had an affair with Donald Trump. Trump denied it. This was around the same period as the Story Daniels case. Um... What It was catch and kill. What the National Enquirer did was to hire her and pay her $150,000 in consultation with Michael Cohen so that she would stay quiet and not reveal what she says was uh, an affair with the um, then presidential candidate before Election Day. Of course, it all came out later. So it's the FEC, Federal Election Commission, that has imposed this fine. But the six-member commission, which often deadlocks along partisan lines, didn't have enough votes to find that Trump and his campaign also broke the law. So they stick it to the National Enquirer. Speaking of Donald Trump, once again, his company is trying to sell the lease on his Washington hotel. This is a magnificent building, by the way, that I went to many, many times long before Donald Trump came on the scene. It was called the Old Post Office because back in the day, meaning a century it had been, I mean, a couple of centuries. It had been a a post office. It had this great clock tower where you could ride up the the tower and kind of look out on all of the the D.C. area. It was no Empire State Building, but um, because Washington is a low-rise city, you could see an awful lot. Trump got the lease from the GSA. It's a federal government lease. And, um, you know, business has really been hurt for two reasons. One, the pandemic. Two, the Trump brand has obviously suffered a great deal. So they tried to sell this once before, weren't able to make the sale. Now it's on the market again. Uh, the last time it was up for sale, revenue of the property had declined by 62%. It's hard to describe what a central role that hotel played 
when Donald Trump was president, not just with, you know, foreign delegations deciding to stay there and trying to curry favor with President Trump. And then was this whole question about the emoluments clause to the Constitution and whether he was indirectly making money off the fact that he was, he did hold the office of the president. But, you know, that's the only place that really Trump went when he wanted to go out. He would go there and order his uh, steak and French fries. And all the people around him, I would often hear uh, Trump types, you know, uh, like Corey Lewandowski and David Bossy and others when they happen to be passing through Fox, say, oh, you going to the hotel tonight? Yeah, I'll see you at the hotel. They just called it the hotel because that was the only hotel that mattered to them, the Trump Hotel. Meanwhile, what is up? What the hell is up with all these cyber attacks? First, it was uh, the pipeline that delivered you know, fuel to 45% uh, of the East Coast. 45% of the fuel came from this pipeline. And now the world's largest meat processor, has had to shut down nine beef plants in the U.S. yesterday, uh, according to officials. And also there was disruption at poultry plants and pork plants because of another cyber attack. The name of the company is JBS. Uh, it says most of its plants will reopen today, but that the disruption could significantly impact wholesale beef prices, which means we're all going to pay more. Is this, is this the future now? Remember when back in the 1970s, a bunch of planes got hijacked uh, by people who wanted to go to Cuba or whatever, and it looked like this was a horrible new future, and finally that was gotten under control. Well, it looks like, I mean, here, here you have the U.S., the most technologically advanced nation on the planet, can't seem to defend itself or private businesses from these cyber attacks, and is it just going to be one industry after another, and what is going to happen as a, as a result? Um, this is pretty troubling stuff because it seems relatively easy for these cyber hackers who may be based in Russia, but they may not be the only uh, cyber hackers around who are able to do this sort of damage. So I'm going to watch that carefully. Amazon has a new philosophy. If you're not happy with the service or the products you get from Amazon, you can sue Amazon. Uh, Amazon used to have a kind of a, you know, arbitration system, which a lot of companies use to kind of stay out of court. Um, and now Amazon, according to the Wall Street Journal, is dropping its arbitration requirement, paving the way for more lawsuits. Now, look, the average person is not going to sue because the package came damaged or, you know, over some one-time um, problem with Amazon. But you have these class action lawsuits, for example. There is one, uh, you know, and the plaintiff's lawyers kind of uh, cook these things up. 75,000 individual arbitration demands on behalf of Echo users. I don't know if it was a problem with Echo, whether it was the cost or the device itself. Uh, but anyway, I think this is going to become more of a thing where if lawyers can get enough uh, people together for a class action, they will sue Amazon. But on the other hand, it's probably better for Amazon if it doesn't have to rely on you to go to the trouble of hiring a lawyer and paying legal fees uh, because you're unhappy with the flat screen TV you order from Amazon or, you know, web services or whatever it is. All right, let's get down to number one. Uh, at the speech that he gave marking the 100th anniversary of the horrific uh, Tulsa race massacre of 1921. President Biden uh, made a really his probably strongest pitch yet uh, to pass the big Democratic voting rights bill. Uh, he said yesterday he would fight like heck against Republican efforts to restrict voting, which is going on in a whole bunch of states, including Texas, where you may have seen over the weekend that all the Democratic lawmakers just walked out to stop the Republicans from ramming this through. So the governor there, Governor Abbott, is calling a special session. He's threatening to dock the pay of Democratic lawmakers if they pull this stunt again. And probably this will ultimately pass. Now, part of the news that came out of this speech is that Biden is announcing that Kamala Harris will be in charge 
of marshaling an effort against the re- a whole array of these Republican-led state laws. So this dispute about how bad it is, Democrats say it's horrible and it's a total infringement on the right to vote. Republicans say no, they're just trying to combat fraud and all of that. But Biden said this was un-American. Kamala Harris seems to be getting all the no-win assignments that the president doesn't want to take the political hit for. So she also was put in charge of the border and working out problems at the border by dealing with Central American countries. And there was a story uh, just today or yesterday by CNN saying the vice president's office tried to distance her from that mess. Now it's like, hey, can you just go to all these Republican-controlled states and get them not to pass these restrictive voting laws? Uh, look, it's in part why you have a vice president. It's at least one of the things she's been put in charge with. I think at some point... Um, look, her job is to do what Joe Biden wants, so I'm not disputing that. But I think at some point it becomes kind of a no-win situation if you're the VP and then you are saddled, especially if you're the VP who wants to run for president possibly in 2024. You know, you can see the attack as now. Kamala Harris, Harris was in charge of the border. What did she accomplish? Kamala Harris wanted to interfere with voting fraud. I mean, these would be obviously GOP ads or Trump ads if he runs again. Uh, So in his speech, President Biden said, this sacred right is under assault with incredible intensity like I've never seen. June should be a month of action on Capitol Hill. And and this is probably the biggest news that came out of it. He took an absolute clear, didn't mention their names, but everybody knows who he's talking about, shot at Democrats Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, the two Democrats who were more moderate, who don't want to get rid of the filibuster. Because here's the deal, as somebody likes to say. Um, Biden's got 50 votes, I think, on the voting rights bill, but he doesn't have 50 votes on getting rid of the filibuster. So he can't pass the Democratic voting rights bill because he can't get to 60 votes. There's no way he gets 10 Republican votes. He couldn't even get 10 Republican votes uh, for the January 6th commission. So Biden says he's going to fight with every tool at my disposal to get this law passed. The current assault on voting rights, he says, is not just an echo of distant history, referring to what happened in Tulsa. In 2020, we faced restrictive laws, lawsuits, threats of intimidation, voter purges, and more. Uh, Washington Post says it's the sort of forceful language many Democrats and activists hoped Biden would use long ago. Uh, And so that's what's going on here. Biden is trying to appease his left-wing base by talking tough. But at the, in reality, it doesn't seem to be much he can do. And here is the, that key um, quote having to do with the two holdouts on the Democratic side. Biden says, I hear the folks on TV saying, why didn't Biden get this done? Because Biden only has a majority of effectively four votes in the House and two in the Senate, the president says, with two members of the Senate who vote more with my Republican friends. It's a little warning shot to Manchin and Cinema that he might be able to come after them. They continue to block his agenda. Uh, you know, the counter-argument is, you know, if you blow up the... They don't want to blow up the filibuster because they see that as central to good governance. Now, you know, it's interesting. I mean, there's no filibuster mentioned in the Constitution. The House obviously doesn't have it. It's a long-standing tradition in the Senate. And I don't know why the Democrats are so adamant to keep it except for this reason. Inevitably, could be, I don't think it'll be 2022, could be 2024, it'll be sometime in the next few years, the Senate will flip and the Republicans will be in charge, Mitch McConnell or whoever's the Republican leader at the moment. And if they get rid of this filibuster now, the Republicans will be able to push through every single thing they want just by getting 50 votes. 
And then Democrats will wish they hadn't done it. That's the way these things work. So that, I think, is the biggest thing holding Democrats back. Uh, Biden hasn't said he wants to abolish a filibuster, uh, but he certainly would like to get movement on this voting bill. Uh, he also talked about closing the wealth gap between black and white Americans uh, in his Tulsa speech. Uh, the median wealth, according to the Liberal Center for American Progress for white households, 189000 in income, 2019, 24000 for black households. Um, so the president talked about a whole bunch of policies to bolster home ownership for minorities, help minority small businesses. Some of this he's already talked about and unveiled. Some of it's new. Nothing uh, particularly uh, dramatic here, except that, you know, he's got to have something to sell about how he's going to make. He can't just give a speech in Tulsa about how awful it was for blacks 100 years ago or now and not deliver something. So that's what he put in the speech. So this is my segue into story two. Piece in the Atlantic, the liberal magazine. Former President Donald Trump has been speaking publicly about running to reclaim the White House in 2024. Well, you know what? He's entitled to talk about that if he runs at the age of 78. Let's see, could a president be elected at the age of 78? Hmm. Um, there's no question in my mind he would win the Republican nomination. The question is, would he be able to do better than he did in 2020 uh, four years after leaving office? Uh, and not lose the Electoral College and not lose the popular vote by 7 million votes, and whether he's running against Biden or somebody else. So I've never seen uh, so much traction on a single tweet, but Maggie Haberman, the New York Times reporter, who's so well-sourced on Trump because she covered him in his New York years, uh, who's writing a book about Trump, who Trump, who although he trashed her all the time, gave an interview to Maggie Haberman. She tweeted yesterday, Trump has been telling a number of people he's in contact with that he expects he will get reinstated by August. That's right. Maggie Haberman says, and I, I keep waiting for the Trump release saying, oh, Maggie Haberman, lousy reporter, no, she's talking about that's not true, but he's not doing it, or at least he hasn't done it so far. So this has given rise to other people in Trump's orbit. Sidney Powell is saying, well, you know, he can simply be reinstated. And then you have the video, which I've talked about the other day, with Mike Flynn, pardoned by Trump, former National Security Advisor, pled guilty, but got out of it. Um, there were problems with the case, certainly, but then he got the, uh, the presidential pardon. He did this video at a Texas conference in which he was asked by somebody in the audience, what do you think about the coup in Myanmar, and could that happen in the United States? And... Flynn said, it should happen in the United States. And about three days later, he backtracked. He says, oh, the media are manipulating my words. Well, you go look at the video. Not hard to find online and see what you think about that. Now, there's a Reuters poll, according to Atlantic, finding that more than half Republicans view Trump as the true president. But even GOP leaders who reject Trump's allegations of fraud are happy to back stricter voting laws predicated on what the Atlantic calls bogus fraud claims. Certainly, there was no proof of widespread fraud in the 2020 election that didn't come out in the Justice Department probe. It didn't come out in any of the zillions of lawsuits. doesn't mean there was zero fraud. There's never no irregularities, but it just was never proven. But this idea, and you know, Maggie Habern's not endorsing this. She says, of course, uh, there's no legal mechanism for that to happen. Uh, if reinstatement sounds kooky, that's because it is, says The Atlantic. And I got to say, 
You know, it's one thing for Trump to say he was robbed, the election was stolen, the election was rigged. It's great for raising money, keeping his profile going. It's a good argument for the Republican voting laws in these various GOP-controlled states. It keeps him as a player. Uh, he'll be a factor in the midterms. It keeps alive the notion he would run. But the idea that suddenly so much widespread fraud would, would be found, and then he would move back into the White House and Joe and Jill would have to leave? I mean... It's nuts. It ain't going to happen. But according to Maggie Haberman, not denied so far, that's what Donald Trump has been telling people. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. I want to come back to this story, number three. I have a column on it today. I covered this on Special Report last night. And it's the Naomi Osaka saga. And you know the basics. Um, she said she wouldn't do any uh, press conferences at the French Open. Uh, she was fined $15,000. Tennis uh, officials threatened to kick her out of Grand Slam tournaments. She had said she didn't want to talk to the press because of her mental health. And then she came out with this remarkable post on Instagram saying that ever since she upset Serena Williams at the 2018 U.S. Open, she has gone through bouts of serious depression. Uh, this is, she has struggled with this for the last three years. I mean, here is a woman. She's the top-paid female athlete in the world. $50 million in endorsements last year. And I argued, look, she should talk to the press. She has an obligation to talk to the press, not just contractually because of the Tennis Association, but because you don't make $50 million in endorsements from Nike and Levi's and Google and Nissan and other big brand-name companies unless you get publicity around the world. And she did apologize to what she called the cool journalist. And she did say the tennis press treats her pretty well. But it has sparked this enormous debate about sports, the media, and depression. Uh, the ESPN commentator Stephen Smith went on the air and saying, he, I suffer from devastating depression, uh, and I have for years since the death of my mom. So people are talking about it more openly. So a couple of columns that caught my eye. Jonathan Liu in The Guardian said her stance has been universally scorned by print media, uh, who, as we know, are traditionally the best people to judge stands and behavior. little British tongue-in-cheek there. An uppity princess, one newspaper columnist wrote. Others have more soberly pointed out that for any athlete, facing the media is just part of the job. That happens to be my position. At this point, uh, says Jonathan Lewis, worth considering what the danger is. Um... Free press is already under unprecedented assault from authoritarian governments. He goes into that. The real problem, says this guy, is not Osaka or even the impressive self-importance of the written media. Um, probably guilty. Rather, it's the press conference itself. With When you think about it, it's quite a weird idea. And one that essentially fails at its central function. The great conceit of the press conference is basically it's a direct line from the athlete to the public at large, where we humble scribes are but the people's faithful eyes and ears in the land of the gods. In case you hadn't noticed, that hasn't really been true for a while. Athletes now have their own direct pipeline to the public, and spoiler, it's not us. It's true. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you name it. Um, so she can be an entertainer and a corporate billboard as long as she plays tennis well rather than being forced to sit in a windowless room explaining herself to a room full of middle-aged men. Touche. So the modern press conference is no longer a meaningful exchange, but really a lowest common denominator transaction, a cynical and often predatory game in which the object is to mine as much content from the subject. Gossip, good. Anger, good. 
feuds good. Personal tragedy good. Meanwhile, the young athlete is expected to answer the most intimate questions in the least intimate setting. All right, he scores some points there. I still think most of the questions aren't that hard. How did you feel when you won, when you lost? Are you looking forward to the next match? Uh, and sometimes it's about politics. As uh, Osaka, I put this in my special report piece, you know, she pulled out of a match last year to protest, you know, on behalf of Black Lives Matter, the shooting of Jacob Blake. And she was asked about that. And she said, you know, I think you guys in the media are often one-sided in the way you tell the stories. She has every right to do that. So when it was to her advantage, she did engage the press. Okay, but fe- there's such a gender divide here. Female columnists like Lindsey Krause of the New York Times overwhelmingly siding with Naomi Osaka. She writes in the Times when a Naomi Osaka dropped out of the French uh, Open. Uh, she wasn't just protecting her mental health. She was sending a message to the establishment at one of the world's most elite sports. I will not be controlled. And look, this is a valid point of view as well. This was a power move, she writes, and it packed more punch coming from a young woman of color. When the system hasn't historically stood for you, why sacrifice yourself to uphold it, especially when you have the power to change it instead? And it's true, tennis executives are now saying, well, we have to have a serious conversation about depression and pressure and all that. Women have long functioned as bit players in sports industries designed by and for men. That's true. The male athletes always make more money. Now, Ms. Osaka, who at 23 is the top-earning female athlete in history, is part of a growing group of female athletes who are betting they'll be happier and maybe perform better by setting their own terms. Increasingly, they have the stature and influence to do so. Okay, right on, you know, girl power and all of that. But I still think you have a responsibility, male or female. You know, a lot of the male athletes don't particularly like taking questions from the press either. If you're going to reap the rewards of worldwide celebrity, talk to the press. It's just not that hard. I understand if you're young and you're nervous, yeah, maybe it is hard. If you're Naomi Osaki, maybe it does contribute to your depression. But it seems to me it's part of the social contract between the media. After all, maybe they can do without the press conferences, but they can't do without television. And it's the decision of the big networks, ESPN, NBC, CBS, ABC, Fox Sports, uh, to televise tennis, golf, football, basketball, baseball, that, ma- that, that makes them so famous, even leaving aside press conferences and leaving aside locker room interviews, that they can command these unimaginable salaries, salaries that, you know, Mickey Mantle and Joe Namath can only dream about because television sports wasn't as big an industry as it is now when you have cable uh, and TNT and ESPN and, and, and Fox Sports and all that. All right, number four, uh, Anthony Fauci's emails obtained by both Washington Post and BuzzFeed. I don't have time to go into all of it, but it, it shows a guy who actually, you know, gets like a thousand emails a day. Was, these were obtained under the Freedom of Information Act. And um, one guy, a Chinese official, he was critical of the U.S. for, you know, you got to wear masks. And then he kind of apologized to Fauci. Fauci wrote back, I understand completely, no problem, we will get through this together. Okay, among the highlights, according to the Post, the medical director of the NFL Players Association asked Fauci for a confidential briefing on how to start the next season. Documentary filmmaker, working on a forthcoming Disney-backed biopic, asked to ride along as Fauci drove to work, and Fauci did cooperate. Um, advisor to Bill Gates expressed concerns about Fauci, Fauci's health. So Gates told uh, a top official at the Gates Foundation, a guy named Emilio Amini, Uh, who is working on vaccination efforts. 
He emailed Fauci and said, I see you on TV almost every day, and although you continue to have considerable energy, I am seriously worried about you. The nation and the world absolutely need your leadership. Fauci wrote back at 1.53 a.m., I will try to engage as much as I can, give it my current circumstances. Fauci's 80 years old. He just signed a book deal for like an 80-page book on, you know, 10 leadership lessons. And people are attacking him. Oh, well, he should be fighting the pandemic full-time. He's not Andrew Cuomo. He didn't do anything wrong. He's not an investigation. Why shouldn't he be able to write a book? I don't really see anything wrong with it, but uh, obviously he has his detractors. All right, number five, and this is kind of related also to the world of medicine. The editor-in-chief of the very prestigious Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, is stepping down under fire after the publication, this journal, the AMA, got considerable backlash over controversial comments made by another editor on a podcast. So the guy's name is Dr. Howard Bouchner. He has been the top editor at the Journal of the AMA since 2011. So after 10 years, he's losing his job. You could say he's forced out. You could say he's resigning voluntarily. But he didn't do this. He didn't make the comments. Well, I'll tell you about the comments. Uh, he said in a statement, he's, Bouchner said, he's profoundly disappointed in myself for the lapses that led to the JAMA Network putting out a podcast episode and a tweet featuring comments that dismissed the existence of structural racism within the healthcare system. Although I did not write or even see the tweet or create the podcast as editor-in-chief, I am ultimately responsible for them. Wow, that is so refreshing. I mean, I'm not even sure this guy should be quitting. He didn't know about it. He didn't know about it in advance. But he's saying, look, um, my name is on the masthead. I should have known. I didn't know. I didn't see it. And I'm going to resign my position. I share and always supported the MA's commitment to dismantling structural racism in the institutions of American medicine. And I look forward to personally contributing to that work going forward. Wow. Uh, so what happened during this podcast episode, this is back in February, the deputy editor of the journal, Ed Livingston, said, uh, basically, the structural racism no longer existed in the U.S. Quote, structural racism is an unfortunate term, said Livingston. Personally, I think taking racism out of the conversation will help. Many people like myself are offended by the implication that we are somehow racist. Uh, Jama sent a tweet saying, no physician is racist, so how can there be structural racism in healthcare? Man, is that tone deaf. So Livingston already resigned. He resigned back in March for saying these things. And um, then there was a black physician that started um, a, a petition calling for review of Bouchner's leadership, and that's why He's out of a job. I will say this, you know, first of all, the comments on structural racism, what? Every single doctor has, doesn't have uh, any racism whatsoever. The entire profession is completely free from this. Now, look, this charge of structural racism actually goes too far. Sometimes it gets involved in our school system where if you're not um, denouncing whites for racism, somehow you're complicit in racism. I mean, there is a very uh, passionate and legitimate debate here about how, to go, how far uh, proponents of this should go. But for a doctor who is esteemed enough to be the number two at the Journal of the American Medical Association to say, I have nothing to see here, move on, all doctors are completely free of any racist intent whatsoever. That was really, what is the technical term? Dumb. That was really dumb. And the guy who didn't even know about it, didn't say it, didn't approve it, didn't tweet it, didn't see the podcast, in advance, is out of a job. 
Appreciate your listening. As always, we try to cast a very wide net here, talk about everything from structural racism to the media to politics to sports. Naomi Osaka. You can subscribe at Apple iTunes and a whole bunch of other places. We'll see you tomorrow with more Buzzbeat. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.